Hey, how's your afternoon, everybody? I got two naps today. <laughs> it was, I haven't taken two naps since I was a teenager. So that was nice. What's that? Yeah, probably so. It took your uh, exhortation to rest uh, to heart today, Duke. Um, so, uh, so we're going to keep exploring the same theme, um, <coughs> slightly different angle. Uh, but tonight, uh, I want to talk about kindness in an age of outrage. Uh, alluded a little bit uh, this morning to um, the climate of, of outrage that we live in right now that, that maybe is on some levels unprecedented, at least for our part of the world. And um, I think a time like this is an opportunity for uh, Christians to... Um, to be different in, in the way that, that Jesus invites us to be different uh, in the world. You know, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that it is not in being like the world that is going to attract the world to Christianity. What's going to attract people to Christianity and the gospel is how different Christianity and the gospel are from the world. And so um, kindness in an age of outrage. What I'd like to do first is, uh, <coughs> is read... 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'll start in verse 3. Just read a couple of verses for, uh, for context tonight. Uh, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. I want to focus in on these words. We had a little bit of a conversation, three of us did, this afternoon on our walk about this. An unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. Can you believe that? Inside the church of all places, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. So the New York Times writer uh, Tim Kreider talks about this modern epidemic that he's observing that he calls outrage porn. And he writes this, so many letters to the editor at the New York Times and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. It's outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish, to get us off on righteous indignation. So, Few places in the world are at the center of this epidemic more than Washington District of Columbia, right? Uh, or at least the conversation around the things that are happening in Washington District of Columbia, whether it's locally where the conversation's happening or whether it's in a place like Nashville, Tennessee, or San Francisco, California, or Little Rock, Arkansas, or pick your place. Pick your subject, race, LGBTQ+, refugees, Mexican border, health care, taxes, 
You know, scripture invites Christians to enter these kinds of heated, uh, outrage-enhancing uh, conversations in a countercultural way. That's a, that's a term that I used a little bit earlier today. When I say counterculture, uh, I mean different than. I mean more life-giving than. I mean more beautiful than, more attractive than what we're experiencing uh, in the mainstream. I love how uh, Eugene Peterson, I, I love Eugene Peterson's take on uh, Acts chapter 2 where it says the people of God were living such a quality of life, such a beautiful life in their cities that they were enjoying the favor of all the people. Have you read that in you know, the English translations? Here's how, here's how Peterson, here's his take on that. People in general looked at the Christians and liked what they saw. There was something unique, something attractional, something that was more like kindness than outrage, that, that, that looked more like love than it did hostility and opposition and leveraging and, and, and so on. And so I made a statement this morning <coughs> that if grace is true and grace is true, then the people who are under grace, the people who are the recipients of grace, followers of Jesus Christ, the people of Jesus Christ, the redeemed ones, should be the least offended and least offensive people in the world. If grace is true and we believe it and it's internalized, we should be the least offended and the least offensive. So I want to talk about that um, thesis under under a couple of different headings. I want to talk about how we engage each other in the middle of a culture of, out, of outrage, and I want to talk a little bit about how we engage our neighbors who are outside of the family of God uh, in the midst of this culture of outrage that Tim Kreider talks about. Uh, in order to safeguard ourselves from becoming outrage pornographers, engaging each other, a craving for controversy and quarrels and constant friction. That's what Paul writes about. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about, about dynamics that were happening inside the church among the people of God. And, you know, really what he's talking about is sibling discord, sibling rivalries inside the family of God, uh, which contradicts uh, the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 where he prays that his people will be one. Just as I and the Father are one, I pray, Lord, that they would be one. So, election cycle. Um, what year was it? It must have been 13 years ago. Uh, and it was a fairly heated election year. Uh, uh, and everybody was feeling all the feelings uh, about their candidate, about the other candidate, particularly around the presidential office. And uh, there was a man in our church who approached me after a, after a worship service. This was when we were in St. Louis. And uh, he said, Scott, you wouldn't believe this conversation that went down in my small group last week. 
He said, uh, and he had a little smile on his face. He said, he said, there was a person who got up in our small group and said, everybody, aren't you so excited that non-Christians are coming to our church every week? And, uh, and somebody said, well, tell us about the non-Christians you're meeting and having conversation with. And, and the person said, well, I haven't actually met anybody or had any conversations like that, but I'm noticing bumper stickers in the parking lot in support <laughs> of the other candidate. And so, to align politically over here apparently equals not Christian. And what my friend said was, I didn't have the heart to say that one of those cars was mine. <laughs> you know, the Bible, it, it talks right here in verse 3. Paul does about sound doctrine. So, sound doctrine is something that Presbyterian people especially... Have you let them in on the secret that you're a Presbyterian church? Have you told them that yet? Oh, I'm sorry. So, cat's out of the bag. We in the Presbyterian tradition uh, pride ourselves on sound doctrine, uh, and yet uh, oftentimes we become more doctrinaire than doctrinal. Uh, that's when you pride yourself in the truth without um, loving people on the basis of the truth, uh, which makes your doctrine pretty much unsound. So the word in the Greek when, 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 we, when we translate it sound doctrine, the word for sound is healthy. That's the most literal translation of that word is healthy, healthy. So uh, one of my predecessors at the church that I serve in Nashville now, uh, his name is Charles McGowan, and I was in a conversation with him once about uh, the history of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, which he's been a part of almost since its founding. And he said, you know, Scott, we, uh, we take our doctrine a little bit too serious, don't we? We take our theology a little bit too seriously, don't we? He says, I'm not saying it's not important to be theological people and, 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 and people with robust biblical doctrine in the way that we think and see the world and so on. But what I'm saying is that our theology or our doctrine is really like our skeleton. It's like the skeleton of our faith. And you need the skeleton. For the body to do what the body is supposed to do, you need the, the skeleton. It, it's the foundational um, you know, center of, uh, of the structure of the human body, the muscles and the, you know, the nerves and you know, it, the vital organs. They can't do what they need to do without the skeleton. And so says, I'm not saying you don't need the skeleton. It's just that if your skeleton is the most visible thing about your body, in the same way that if your theology is the most visible thing about your Christianity, it means that it's either sick or dead. The pulse of, of healthy doctrine, biblically, is this, this beautiful word, agape, love. Greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second commandment is just like it. Can't have one without the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, 
I think what Paul is after here is if you, if you say that you're for the truth, but people don't sense that you love them, you're not really for the truth uh, to the degree that you think you are. You know, truth without love, that's just a bully you've got. In the same way that love without truth is codependent enabling, sappy sentimentalism, whatever you want to call it, but truth without love, you got a bully there. You've got a mean human being there. You've got somebody who's using the Bible as a weapon instead of as the source of life. And so what are some positive examples the scriptures give us about how relationships change once we are called into this family called the Church of Jesus Christ together? Um, socioeconomics uh, are not barriers anymore or should not be barriers anymore. I spoke uh, just this morning about David and Jonathan. You have a, a shepherd uh, a shepherd's son, the son of a shepherd who, um, you know, you, you could say he's blue collar. You could say that, that um, uh, you know, he's in the, he's work, he works with his hands. Uh, and then you've got Jonathan who uh, is eating the finest meals and, and going to the best parties and uh, his name is in the news uh, uh, because he's a prince. He's the heir apparent to King Saul, the king of Israel. And these two are the tightest of friends. They, they, it says they make a covenant with one another that's so deep that they promise to take care of one another's children if something happens to the other, which actually ended up happening. You know, later on, uh, you know, Jonathan dies in battle, and who was it but David that adopts Jonathan's son with special needs, Mephibosheth? And so socioeconomics no longer become an issue in the same way that, or in, in, in the way that they are an issue outside of the gospel. You know, where the, the rich look down on the poor and the, the poor resent the rich. Like those dynamics are meant to fizzle away under Jesus. The one who was rich and yet became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich and so that this beautiful equality dynamic starts to develop inside the family of God. Politics spoke about that uh, this morning as well. You know, the anti-government zealot and the, the, the government tax collector, both part of Jesus' 12, getting along as, as brothers together somehow under Jesus because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Paul's letters. Okay, so here's... here's um, Here's something that really uh, became a, a light bulb for me about the way that Paul crafted his letters, the Apostle Paul. He, he begins most of them with two words, grace to you and peace from God, our, remember y'all, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the salutation at the beginning of the letter, grace to you, that was the way that Greeks started their letters. Peace to you is the way the Jews started their letters. And here we have Paul in, in most of his letters saying grace to you and peace, Jews to you and Gentiles to you, red state to you and blue state to you, 
affluent to you and living paycheck to paycheck or on food stamps to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as it says in Galatians 2.28, there is in Christ no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, so there's this, um, there's this really well-known theologian uh, named R.C. Sproul, who is, uh, I guess, part of, part of our tribe. Um, and R.C. Sproul apparently came and spoke at the church that I pastor uh, a few years before I arrived there. And R.C. Sproul is, is big on what you call the Reformed doctrines. And these are doctrines that you might see people celebrating, especially this year being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And R.C. Sproul was teaching that night on uh, what, you know, Reformation theologians would, would call uh, the sovereignty of God or soli deo glory. To God alone be the glory for the salvation of any human being. You know, we did not choose him. He chose us. You know, the, the, the whole doctrine of predestination and so on. I'm going to let Duke unpack those doctrines with you uh, uh, together. Um, but the point being that there are basically two schools of thought with respect to the God's sovereignty and human free will and how the two work together in the saving of a person and a person coming to Jesus Christ. And so, so R.C. Sproul would say that our wills are held captive to the will of God. If God wants to save us, God's going to save us and he's going to change our disposition and he's going to change our orientation toward the things of God to ensure that he calls us to himself into his family. So the will of a human being follows the will of God, whereas there's another school of thought, the Arminian camp, that uh, Billy Graham would be part of this group, C.S. Lewis would be part of this group, that would say that, 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 that essentially God uh, leaves us free to either choose for him or choose against him, and it's ultimately the will of God that follows the will of a human being, because He's, he, he doesn't treat us like puppets. Okay, so that's how the Arminian approach would go. And in the Q&A time, somebody raised their hand and said, Dr. Sproul, you've spoken of this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and, 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 and the bondage of the human will. With such passion, it makes me wonder if you think that you will see Billy Graham in heaven. And Dr. Sproul said, I will absolutely not see Billy Graham in heaven. And there's this collective gasp, right, that you might imagine. And he said, wait, let me explain my answer. I believe that Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away that I will not get to see him. That's what I'm talking about. You keep the essential things essential. And you keep the debatable things in the realm of, hey, we're still brothers and sisters, even though we may see things differently here. Keep the essential things essential. And the debatable things, you don't divide over them. It's a great picture of that. What would I do without C.S. Lewis, even though my view on these things are different than his? He's taught me more about how to engage 
the thoughtful, secular mind with uh, the beauty of the gospel than, than virtually any other writer. What would I do without my wife who taught me to like the Gilmore girls? <laughs> Even to the point where I've watched some episodes by myself. What would I do without Pastor Ronnie Mitchell? 20 years my senior, been the pastor of the same church, same black church in East Nashville for over 40 years, married to the same woman for almost 50. Teaches me more about what it means to see the kingdom of God through the eyes of a child and come to the Lord with open hands. Teaches me more about the systemic injustices in my own city that is celebrated on both coasts as the it city, as the third coast that is doing this. But there's another part of Nashville that is doing this, not only while the rest of Nashville is doing this, but in many ways because the rest of Nashville is doing this. What would I do? without that perspective, and I wouldn't have that perspective without somebody who's paying the price for it in my life as a mentor. What would I do without Brendan Manning, the Roman Catholic who's taught me more about grace than any Protestant ever has? What would I do without Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian who teaches me what it looks like for your theology to catch fire, for the heart to... to to be made aflame with these beautiful, healthy doctrines of the gospel. What would I do without Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose life shows me, not just his writings, but his life shows me that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, the power of the gospel in every way, even though I'm different than all of these people in, in different ways. You know, Jonathan Edwards, different view of church government than me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, different nationality. Brennan, Brennan Manning, Catholic, Protestant. Ronnie Mitchell, black, white. Patty Sauls, female, male. C.S. Lewis, Arminian, Calvinist. The power of the gospel is that it, it liberates us to overcome partisan attitudes of all kinds. And it, it leads us to expand our us and to narrow our, our them. The church is the incubator for this. Like the church is, is the place where we are meant to learn love across the lines of difference. And, and if I dare say it, if I may say it, your church in particular is a church that is filled with, with uh, beautifully disproportionate amounts of opportunity to love across the lines of difference, economically, socially, ethnically, politically, and so on. And then this propels us after we've learned to be one on the inside of the kingdom of Jesus and of the family of Jesus. It, it then propels us to, to go out into the world and become the most life-giving lovers of our neighbors, right? Because we get practice in here so that we can go out there and be different, not as a... Not as a power-hungry, moral majority, but as a life-giving, grace-centered, love-driven minority. 
And so, spend the rest of my minutes here talking about engaging our neighbors. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a requirement. As you all know, this is a requirement of an officer in Jesus' church to have a good reputation with outsiders, to have friends who are not Christians, who have non-Christians in their lives who say, I like that person and I want to be like that person, to have a good reputation with outsiders. I mean, this is, this is what Jesus modeled for us, right? Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, he welcomes even sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors, prostitutes, I mean, those who were on the margins and considered to be the dregs of humanity, who were spoken of more like they were animals than, than image-bearing humans. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't give them back their dignity. He calls out the dignity that's always been there. Such a contrast, Jesus was, to the scolding Pharisees. The smug and scolding Pharisee of Luke 18 comes to mind. Thank you, my God, that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look at me. You know, few things corrupt the Christian witness more, and I think we're still paying the price for the 1990s on this one. Few things corrupt the Christian witness more than Christians who scold. You know, how many of us have a testimony, a story of, of how we fell in love with Jesus Christ? You know, of the day we said, you know, I'm in. You know, it, the, where the story is this. One Christian or a group of Christians lectured me about my ethics and my lifestyle. And on the basis of one Christian or a group of Christian lecturing me about my lifestyle, I said to myself, what else would I give my life to but lectures and scoldings? I found, finally found myself. I've been in ministry for, an ordained ministry for 20 years been a Christian for 28, I've never met a single person with that story. Never met one. You know, Tim Keller talks about tolerance in this way. He says, tolerance is not about not having convictions. Of course you have convictions. You're people of the book, right? Tolerance is about how your convictions lead you to treat people who disagree with you. You know, Acts chapter 17 gives us a picture of this with the Apostle Paul, where it says that you know, he writes, he, or he walks into Athens, um, sort of the, the epicenter of secular thought. It's like the university culture. It would be like walking into to, you know, Boston, right? like the, you know, into the square at Harvard or something like that. And uh, all these different people sharing all these different philosophies and ideas and politi political, you know, orientations and, and, and ideologies and such with one another. And right in the middle is this altar, it says, to an unknown God. And, and, and what that says, an altar to an unknown God, is that all viewpoints are legitimate. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. What's true for you is true for 
you, what's true for me is true, is true for me. <coughs> the sovereignty of the individual, I expressive individualism, which is the prevailing doctrine of 21st century American culture. The sovereignty of the individual. And so Paul walks in there and it says that his spirit is, is nauseated and restless because it, sa it says the city was full of idols and it was deeply troubling to him. A and so how does he express that? The first thing that he does is he gives them a compliment. I see, men of Athens, that you're very religious. I see that you're very religious. You're, you're searching for, for meaning. You're searching for truth and beauty. You're searching for transcendence. Your hearts are telling you that there is something more than, than what meets the eye, something bigger than ourselves, a story much grander than the, the micro stories that we're living. That's good. That's right. That's a true thing. And then he goes on. He says, as some of your poets and philosophers have said, and then he quotes the, the, uh, the Epicureans, and he quotes the Stoics, both, both systems of thought very destructive as systems. And yet, like every worldview, like every partisan platform, like every philosophy, there are things in there that are true and beautiful that can be cherry-picked out and affirmed because the gospel affirms them too. That's why you can't say to be a Christian is to be a Republican. Because you got to care about the poor and you got to care about the other. In the same way that you can't say to be Christian is a Democrat because you got to care about personal values and ethics. You see? And, and both are just very incomplete. Very incomplete. And yet there is truth and beauty that you can pull out from the left and from the right. And that doesn't make Jesus a, you know, a centrist or a moderate. It makes Jesus just completely other and outside of both. You know, the one thing that makes the Bible so relevant, you know, you hear this word relevant, you know, you've got to be relevant. The one thing that makes the Bible relevant is the Bible shows no interest whatsoever in being relevant. What it does is it comes into every situation and it affirms that which is good and right and true and beautiful, just like Paul does in Athens. And it critiques and repudiates that which is unjust, that which is untrue, that which is unbeautiful. That's what makes it relevant. It points us to the truth. And so Paul, however, back to this whole theme of engaging our neighbors with kindness, his starting point is to build bridges before he gets to the hard stuff. Now, I need to tell you <laughs> that there is one true God, and you ain't following him. And, and he gets into the hard stuff, but, but not before he establishes a climate of trust and a climate of love. You know, Jesus was like this with the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, where, you know, the religious... People are, are, are ready to give her her due. I, I've always wondered why the man wasn't dragged in as well. Because if she was caught, so was he, right? Uh, and yet she, and she alone, was dragged in. Who knows? Maybe the man she was with was one of the guys in the circle holding one of the rocks. Who knows? 
But Jesus comes in, and, you know, they test him. They try to catch him in his words. What say you, Jesus? The law says that you're supposed to condemn and, and execute a person who's caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus says, well, you're right. So whoever among you is without sin, by all means, be the first to throw a rock at her. Throw hard. Whip it. Whip it good. Right? And, and they all, one by one, drop their rocks and walk away, and it's just Jesus and her eye to eye. And, and he says, has nobody condemned you? And, and she says, no one, sir. And, and then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. See, grace and ethics, love and truth. It's not either or, but the order in which the two are given to the woman is the difference between Christianity and moralistic religion. Moralistic religion says, leave your life of sin, and then maybe you won't be condemned. The gospel says, I do not condemn you. Now, go leave your life of sin. Go live the life you always dreamed of and didn't even realize you were dreaming to live that life. You know, you reverse the order of those two sentences. You lose Christianity, you lose the gospel, you lose Jesus. Rich ruler is another one. You know, there's this man who uh, couldn't be more different than a prostitute. I mean, he, according to his, his own self-assessment, he's kept the law of God pretty well all of his life. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he says to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Well, this I've done since I was a young boy. Well, there's, there's just one. No, maybe two, maybe three. The first two and the last one. You know, no, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols before you, you shall not covet, okay? So there's this one thing that you, you think you have it, but it has you, and it's your money. It's got you around the neck. And so in your case, get rid of it. Give it away to the poor and follow me. In the same way that he may say to, say, say to you and me, get rid of your money and follow me, or get rid of your, um, your porn or get rid of your workaholism, or get rid of your retail therapy, or get rid of whatever. You know, there's something that, that has each person uniquely around the neck, and what had this man uniquely around the neck was his love of money. And the man couldn't bear it, and so he turned and he walked the other way, but a couple of really significant details in that passage. Number one, it says that when Jesus looked at this man, it says he looked at him and he loved him. Didn't shame him, didn't scold him. Told him the truth, but he loved him. And it says that the man, after the experience of this encounter with Jesus, whom he ultimately decided to walk away from, says that he walked away sad. Not angry, not feeling like he'd been bully-whipped over the head with a, you know, a study Bible, but sad. Maybe because he's thinking, I, I know that in walking the other direction, I'm walking away from something really magnificent. I'm going to significantly miss out on something. There's a sadness. There's a sense of loss. This liberates, you know, how we relate and how we are free to minister out in our communities. We are, we are encouraged by Scripture 
to invite people to belong with us before they believe with us. We're invited to embrace people before and, and whether or not they ever agree with us on our sound doctrine. And that's part of what makes our doctrine healthy is that we can embrace people who are avowed to never believe what we believe. Remember, God takes zero pleasure in the death even of the wicked. God takes zero pleasure in the death of Hitler or Saddam Hussein or you or me. So here's how it can play out, or here's how it's played out in, in my experience on a couple of occasions, which really was just one occasion in this instance. I'll share with you about a husband and wife who were coming off of a, a heroin addiction that um, was the gateway to which was an opioid addiction. And um, the guy's name was Bill. Uh, and they show up at our church because in their uh, group therapy, the, the leader of the group said, you know, in the addiction recovery group said, you need to find religion somewhere, some, find religion somewhere. And so for them, for them, that meant showing up at the closest nearby church. And that was us. And Bill reeked of nicotine. He had, you know, this, this tattered t-shirt and and just looked like he'd been run over by a truck right but he's got this kind of toothless smile on his face right you can tell he'd been through war uh, mostly self-inflicted and you know he comes in and he you can smell the nicotine from 10 feet away and i remember we're singing and i'm thinking man i cannot wait to talk to that dude and hear his story after the service i'm gonna and and we're singing, we're in the middle of singing, and I get a tap on my shoulder from this guy I'll call the church guy. And the church guy said, hey, you know, pastor, you see that guy over there? I said, yeah, yeah. You know who he is? No, I don't know who he is, but man, he smells like cigarettes, and man, he's drinking all that coffee and just drawing all this attention to himself, and he's distracting my worship. you want me to talk to him? And I said, no, I'll get this one. I'll, I'll take this one. Thank you. But one of the things this man was offended by was that he smelled like nicotine. And this is a guy that's got needle streaks on his arm, and he smells like nicotine, and that's your, that's your problem? I don't know about you, but when, when, you, when you make a transition from heroin addiction to nicotine addiction... I call that an upgrade. And then what happened with his wife on the same day goes down as one of my favorite church stories in the history of church stories. So she walks into the nurse. They have two boys who basically are about this tall and this tall. They've, they've basically grown up with stone parents, right? And so there's a huge story there for the kids. She drops the boys off in the nursery and goes into the service, comes back afterward, and, and the, uh, the woman who's in charge of things that morning says, are, are, are you there, Mom? Yeah, yeah. Hate to tell you this, but 
they picked a few fights this morning. There have been some bloody noses, and about half the toys in the church are destroyed. And it's okay. We need to get no, new toys anyway. Um, and, and so just impulsively, she screams out in front of 100 or so children and a bunch of parents who are standing there waiting to pick up their kids, shoot, except you replace two vowels with one. You get the word that she screamed at the top of her lungs in church in front of all the children, and, and, and you could see, the, lo- you see the, the blood disappearing from her face, and you should see her shoulders slump, and you, sh- you could see her posture, you know, change to like the dog tucking its tail under itself and, and starting to walk with her boys toward the door, what seemed to be to her the familiar walk of shame. I've done it again. That, that's what was written all over by him. We are never going to freaking see her again. We're never going to see her again. And the, uh, the, the woman who had broke the bad news to her um, called the church office and said, hey, she happened to sign, did Anne happen to sign, you know, the, the, those little visitor cards and leave there? And she did. And so this woman wrote a note to... Anne, and sent it to her. It's back when you took this little car thing called a card, and you wrote on it with this thing called a pen, and put this thing called a stamp on it. And the note basically said, "Dear Anne, I want you to know that this morning you gave the gift to me of the most refreshing experience I've ever had in the church. You reminded me what other place in the world." is better and safer to fall apart than inside the church of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and who loves us at our best and loves us at our worst. May I please say thank you for screaming shit in my church in front of all of our children. And Anne shows up the next week early with swag. (laughs) So... Two years later, Anne became the nursery director of the church. She was not a good one. (laughs) But that's beside the point. The story ended uh, just two years ago. We got a phone call two years ago from the the guy who's pastoring that church now. Both Bill and Anne died of an overdose. They both relapsed. And... Uh, and yet, it's true, isn't it, that if they both fell asleep high in Jesus, then they woke up the next moment as sober as they've ever been, right? Just is the gospel taken away when we fall off the wagon? You know, does Jesus say to Peter, wait, you betrayed me. I'm going to take the gospel and I'm going to hold on to it until you return. No, Jesus never stopped clothing Peter with his beauty and righteousness. And we are given the supreme gift of being able to express that to people in a culture of outrage porn. You know, pornography, Russell Brand of all people said this. Pornography does not show you too much. It shows you too little. And in the same way, outrage 
it just shows the world too little about what a truly beautiful justice impulse is supposed to look like. Because as you do justly, you're also to love mercy and walk humbly. I love what Madeline Lingle said in her reflections on faith and art. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but we draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. The more conservative you are about your Bible, the more liberal you're going to be in the way that you love. You're on the narrow path. Your embrace is going to be really, really broad. You know, as it says in First Peter, in your hearts, honor Christ, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious. What's our basis for this? Our basis for this is the outrage, the, the, the rightful outrage of the Father was turned away from us toward God the Son on our account. We were the offenders, and he loved us to the uttermost. Our Father in heaven was legitimately right and wronged. And he couldn't overlook our rebellion and our injustices, and yet he also couldn't bear to live without us. And so he so loved that he gave. We were his them. And I'll close with this, you know, getting back to kind of the, the diversity theme, which we'll close on, close with tomorrow. America is not the center of the Christian story. You know that, right? America is, n was never, with all due respect to Reagan fans, America was never the city on the hill. It's never meant to be the city on the hill. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus spoke about. My hope rests as a 21st century Caucasian, American, English-speaking, white Westerner who's never had to miss a meal in his life. My hope rests solely and squarely on the shoulders of a first century brown-skinned, Middle Eastern, refugee Jew who was poor all of his life, homeless for some of his life, never spoke a word of English, never hung out with white people. And yet, when he said, go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, he was thinking of people like me. If he would include me, his, his least likely friend, Right? His, his other with not just a capital O, but with all the letters capitalized. I am his other in every sense of the word, and yet I'm included. If this does not transform me into a person of peace inside the church of Jesus and outside in the world, I don't know what will. So what I'd like to do is, in the spirit of this teaching, close with a prayer from a Roman Catholic. Prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. 
Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen.